life after Fire Mountain with teenagers for me is one of the most stressful parts of working with adolescents in recovery because I've seen every story afterwards. I've seen wonderful successes. I've seen horrible relapses. I've seen relapse with people saying, you know what? I don't like this. I like that sober thing better. I've seen death. Today, I have the absolute privilege and pleasure and speaking for the tears in my eyes, joy to introduce all of my listeners to a graduate of Fire Mountain named Clara, who has her story to tell. And one of the reasons why I brought her on is because as you'll see in her story and her path of recovery, this hole that she was in, that she dug herself into, it was deep and it was intense and it was dramatic and it was, it looked hopeless. She was at the bottom of her pit. And in the, the time that I've known Clara, I've watched her dig up and she's thriving. I'm so proud of this girl. I know her family is beside themselves with how hard she's working. And I'm even going to spill some beans right here in the front. I have talked to another graduate of Fire Mountain who told me about how Clara helped him when he was struggling with relapse. Folks, welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. I'm your host, Aaron Huey, and today's show is called Digging Up. I am a teacher, teen and parent coach, internationally known trainer. I own and run a residential treatment center for teens. And best of all, I am a happy father, stepfather, and husband. Welcome to another episode of Beyond Risk and Back, brought to you by Mental Health News Radio and Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center. I am your host, Aaron Huey. Beyond Risk and Back is designed for parents, clinicians, and teachers looking for support to guide the teens they care for to move forward from risky behaviors into real freedom and responsibility. Now, let's help each other get these kids back from Beyond Risk. Clara, I am so happy to hear your voice, to hear you things like, hey, I just got your text. I was in the mountains knowing that that means that you are out being in the woods and doing those things. And I'm so happy to talk to you. And thank you so much for coming on and being so open with our listeners. Thanks, Aaron. I'm thrilled to be here and really honored that you chose to speak with me. And it does feel nice to be able to connect with you and share my life and share how I am thriving and just being I was telling you a little bit earlier, there was a time when I did not think that I would have opportunity to go to the mountain and just be. I was in a hole that was so dark. I couldn't even see the next day, let alone years later. And if I ever was able to imagine years later, it, it definitely wouldn't. I wouldn't have pictured it to be as beautiful and as healthy as it is now. Well, let's build on that a little bit. I want parents and teachers and clinicians to hear a little bit about you and your story. So let them know what happened. How did you end up at Fire Mountain? My story kind of began when I was around 12. I was blessed to have a beautiful childhood. I didn't have any trauma. I didn't have an abuser. There wasn't anything major going on that led me to break. The thing that really sent me on a downhill spiral was a lack of connection within myself. I was 12 years old, going into junior high, surrounded by up-and-coming social media, models, TV, all of this pressure to be perfect. And I kind of snapped. 
I would look at myself in relationship to my peers and just wallow in despair, thinking that I was so strange and so foreign. And, you know, well, Susie Q has better hair than me and Allie has the nicer pair of jeans. And it was just constant, constant berating of myself and constantly criticizing myself and anything that had to do with my authentic self I backed away from and it created a, a huge void that I filled with drugs and alcohol. I discovered comfort and solace in pills, alcohol right off the bat. I knew that in my mind I needed to make changes to fit in with these perfect and popular teenage girls and those changes that I felt like I needed to make involved drugs and alcohol. I thought I thought it was glamorous. I thought that it was I thought it was cool to feel like to feel like shit. Sorry, Aaron, I don't know if we can Yes, absolutely. It's my show. You know how I am. I want you to speak freely and openly. Yeah, well I, I thought it was cool to feel like shit. I thought that people would look at me thin and on drugs and think that I was glamorous instead of the reality. I was a 13-year-old girl stealing my mom's pills. And I was a 13-year-old girl manipulating older men to buy me alcohol. And I was <laughs> I was promiscuous, I was lost. I it was almost like I didn't exist anymore. I was just drowning in this ocean of anxiety and self-hatred. And anytime that I took a pill or got external validation from an older man or was able to score a bottle just based on being cute. And it was like the little life deck that took it away. In reality, I was disconnecting further and further from my authentic self, thinking that it was helping, thinking that the more I used, the more I ignored my problems, the better things would get. And the disconnect became so severe that I left my left my reality in shambles. I was living in this fantasy world where I was super glamorous. I was super awesome. I was popular. People loved me. I had this fake sense of self-love that was completely dependent on the substances I was using. And so by the time that I was in high school, two short years later, I had nothing left. I would wake up in the morning and... Uh, immediately have to get high or I would wake up in the morning and go into this fit like this huge trauma attack and I like I wouldn't know what was going on because that reality that I had created through the illusion of glamour from drugs and alcohol was shattered it was first thing in the morning I was sober I was in my room I was having to come to terms with the truth which is that I, I was a sad and <laughs> pretty pitiful teenager with no direction and no real friends and no real sense of belonging. And it enforces the insidious cycle. Eventually I ended up having a kind of severe break. I took some, well, it was marketed as LSD and it was it, really, it was just a research chemical that had really poor interaction with amphetamines. And I had faked ADD in order to obtain an Adderall prescription. And so I was on amphetamine salts while taking this and completely snapped. I, it was impossible to hide from my mom. She knew, she knew that I was fucked up. She knew that something was wrong. It was like, you couldn't, 
it was one of the first times that she looked at me and really thought, wow, my daughter's not here. It was kind of the pinnacle moment where she realized I had been living this false life. And she drove me to the Fort Collins Hospital from Cheyenne, Wyoming, where I was living at the time. And I was checked into a mental hospital called Denver Health. And they put me on a cocktail of prescription pills, sent me on my way a few weeks later with nothing else but three new pill bottles. I had no game plan, no no tools under my belt to help cope with the root of the problem. I had no idea that there was a root of the problem. I just knew that I was doing drugs and it wasn't working and I didn't care that it wasn't working because at that point, it was all I knew. And so that insidious cycle continued. A few short months later, I went to another hospital. And by this point, it wasn't just the drugs and alcohol. I had sunk so far that I prayed every night before I went to bed that I wouldn't wake up the next morning. And my arms and legs were were covered in cuts. And I would sit in the shower and not even be able to cry. Like there was just nothing left at all. And so even though the the severity of my addiction and my depression and my suicidal ideation and this chronic anxiety had worsened. Uh, I was only in the second hospital for one day in Nebraska this time. And they told my parents that they weren't raising me right and that it was their fault and sent me home. It wasn't until the early in the next year when I was able to be pointed in a right direction I had my kind of third and final mental break, ended up in a mental hospital in Wyoming. And from there, my parents, had, they had had it. They told me that I would either have to be put up as a ward of the court and that they did not want anything to do with me or I would choose finally to get the help that I needed. And they had picked out a really awesome sounding holistic residential treatment center called Fire Mountain. And they left it up to me. And I think that's very important to note that the decision was in my hands. It wasn't a decision that I wanted to make, like be a ward of the court or go to a treatment center for four months. I wanted to go back home and continue feeding into that illusion of a life that I had. But I ended up choosing the holistic center. From there, I had my ups and downs, spent five months in the treatment center, continuing to feed into my manipulative ways, trying to lie my way out of it, trying to convince myself, convince my family, convince the clinical teams, convince you, Aaron, that everything was fine. And sometimes I look back on that with a sort of regret. I think that really maybe the only problem was that I was a liar and that's it. Like I was able to sit and lie to myself and think things were fine. And I was able to sit and lie to you and to my parents and to the clinical team that everything was fine. Um, and maybe maybe it's not the dishonesty was that Maybe it's not the dishonesty that was the problem, but rather the ignorance. In Wyoming, there are absolutely no opportunities for mental health education. I wasn't able to go to a Wyoming hospital the first two times because there weren't any beds available. When I had finally gone to the hospital in Wyoming, it was the same thing with Denver and Nebraska. They leave you with nothing besides a new prescription. And at Fire Mountain, 
that was not the care that I received. I was able to really discover what was going on once I surrendered to it and took off the mask and stopped lying using group therapy and equine therapy and neuroscience classes getting off of the cocktail of prescription medicines I was on really helped clear my mind and give me an understanding that if I have knowledge and awareness about what's going on I'm able to fix it. One of the things that I remember very clearly was there was a time that you and I were sitting in my office and we were chatting about recovery. And we were sharing some similar parts of our path. They were, we're both very dramatic people. We both love attention. We came from good families. Our, the towns we grew up in were relatively close. And I said something that I remember the impact when I said it, and I remember the impact it had on you, and it actually became a topic of conversation between us, which was about not having to be the most popular person at the party. And that the party, <laughs> the party represented for me, life. And it represented for me, my family. And it represented for me, actual parties. That it, it was okay to be boring. Now, I know you and you know me. And I think we can both agree neither of us are boring people. We're, we're dynamic. We're charismatic. We love the sound of our own voice. I, I mean, we're good at this talking thing. We're good at, at being emotionally flamboyant and we're artistic and we're creative and and those are really good healthy things and that self-deprecation side where we lose ourselves in that you know like like we were talking about the constant comparison even though you were really living in a nice home with a good upbringing and stuff like that there was this other piece where you looked at everybody else she has nicer jeans she has nicer hair and it was the same for me so let's move forward into recovery because you and i both agreed that yes we have our stories of how we get to the bottom but i want and and i know you want to to talk about the digging up and the getting out of that of that life and that we get to save some of the characteristics we have we're dramatic we're flamboyant we're emotional we're creative you know th these are these are okay things now on the flip side but now let's talk about the recovery and and I want to know what worked what was the thing that that got you up that woke you up what were some of the things you forgot that you remembered later uh, talk about sobering up there wasn't just one thing that kind of made made it click for me like oh wow i i can recover like this is this is what's working for me and it took a long time i was at fire mountain for five months left had a relapse came back for another month and even after graduating that second time it's, it's a learning curve i think that you really need to practice recovery it's not something that you get it's not something that you all of a sudden have you know it's just a new way of life and for me to get to that new way of life i had to really 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 practice feeling like shit <laughs> um and like you were saying we can keep the uh, the characteristics the emotional flamboyance the drama the um the empathy feeling deeply you can, you can keep all of that but you need to learn how to get good at it you know you need to take 
being dramatic in order to gain external validation and in order to get attention that you're needing so desperately and you need to take being dramatic to get needs met when you don't know how to meet them and transform it into being dramatic to stand out in a crowd and dramatic to propel yourself forward in life and dramatic enough that you can stand up for what you believe in and what you know is right. So I think the most important thing for me in recovery was realizing that if I begin to look at the way that I was living my life with some level of acceptance and enough awareness that I can transform it and leave what wasn't working behind, but still really hold on to like the key aspects of myself and use them to propel me into recovery. You're saying... It does make sense, and you're what I'm what I'm hearing you say. And I've heard both kinds of stories. That and I, and I was the first kind of story. My recovery was a moment that I had longed for and wished for, and suddenly everything fell into place, and I had a very clear choice: go that way and die, go this way and live. But you're saying that your recovery has been more of a slow burn. Oh, most definitely. I do think it was a slow burn, and I think it will continue to be a slow burn. There was one moment that I remember, Aaron sitting in your office and you kind of just yelled at me. You're like, Clara, what the, what are you doing? You know, if you keep doing this, you are going to die. Like, what the fuck are you doing? You need to shape up. You're not good at doing drugs. And maybe in retrospect, that might have been my moment where I realized, but it, you know, it's never been something where I, where I, I don't know. I don't know how to phrase this eloquently. It has been a slow burn and it is a learning curve. And there are, quite a few moments like the one I just described in your office that maybe made it click more or you could see a jump in the graph but it's a constant it's a constant practice I think did you do did you do NA meetings 12 steps afterwards I can't remember I attended NA meetings regularly for a year after for my first year of recovery no I was just going to ask did it help did it work I do think that it helps and I recommend everyone going even (laughs) if you can find an open NA or AA meeting, even if you're not an addict or an alcoholic, I recommend you go. Those 12 step rooms provide the same sort of community that I was able to be a part of at Fire Mountain. And I think that's very, very important for recovery outside of treatment centers. In fact, I would love to see a greater trend in outpatient recovery than there than I have seen in the past, uh, because it's really difficult to go from a community that supports recovery and is constantly willing to sit down and process things and talk about your emotions and talk about how your old patterns of thought and behaviors are affecting your present, et cetera, et cetera to like the real world, as we would call it in treatment, where there's a lot of stigma around talking about it. And so every Tuesday at seven o'clock, which is when my favorite NA meeting was, I was able to kind of go back to that new normality where it was okay to talk about how I was feeling and it was okay to be around people in recovery. And I knew that I was able to have community and have friends, even if I was a 16-year-old girl sitting in a room full of 50 plus old men, you know, like I still, I still had that community. The sponsor that I was working with when I first got out of Fire Mountain suggested that I go to two or three meetings a week. And it was very black and white. You either went to the meetings and were doing well, or you weren't going to the meetings. And that meant that you must be going off of the deep end. 
and it was very black and white. And I see that a lot of times in recovery, either you're recovered and you're perfect or you're struggling. And that kind of began to rub me the wrong way. So I started phasing NA out. I don't go regularly anymore. Um, to be honest with you, Erin, I probably haven't been to a meeting in weeks because I found that I feel better when I'm able just to bring awareness to what's working for me and realize that it's not only black or white. There are days where I'll wake up and there and I do something wrong and that's okay. And I'm still able to recover and I don't and be in recovery and continue striving for a better version of myself. And it, it doesn't have to be so black and white. I've gotten very into energy healing and holistic healing practices, homeopathy. That has been a huge help in my recovery. It why? aids with the why, why did that help? Why did, why did studying homeopathy and beginning to practice it, why is that helping you? Because it gives me an opportunity to have control over my own health. Sitting in a psychologist's office and having seen that they had three prescriptions written out for me before I had expressed the problem really, really engendered like the sense of hopelessness. And it helped enforce the ignorance around mental health and the way the brain works and the way that the body works and the way that your energy works. There's no education around it, but by taking initiative to learn about homeopathy and being inspired by the huge regimen of vitamins and supplements that I was put on through Fire Mountain, and learning about the direct correlation between my physical health, my emotional health, and my spiritual health has re-given me like a sense of control. And that's one of the biggest issues I had about recovery is there was the powerlessness. I don't know if you can relate to this, Aaron, but I always want to be in control. I think that it has something to do with our dramatic and emotional flamboyance we want to have. and control over the situation and dominate it and tailor it to be reflective of how we feel. Sometimes the, the, the fear of what happens if I was to lose control is, is what motivates me towards managing my health and managing my recovery after 19 years. I'm still very much a control freak. And I, and I think that's something that all addicts of every kind, whether it's self-harm or gambling or, you know, alcohol, drugs, video games, it's we're, we're trying to control our world because our world felt like chaos and we felt like we were being buried in it. So yeah, yeah, I, I absolutely can resonate with it. So what else are you doing? You've got homeopathy. What else are you doing to fill your time? I have also started a small LLC with Reiki practice through Fire Mountain. I was exposed to all sorts of different alternative methods of healings, one of which was Reiki. The general manager, Terry, um, is a Reiki master. And I remember, oh, geez, I was throwing a fit about something. I can't remember what, maybe needing to put on a longer pair of shorts. And <laughs> <laughs> Terry came up to me and put her hands on my back. It was one of the first times, and it, just a gentle palm on the middle of my back. It was one of the first times that I like felt supported or unconditional love. And it was just from this light touch and I couldn't figure it out. And I didn't ask her. I was too scared. It sounded crazy to tell her, you know, you barely brushed my back and my whole entire energy shifted. I went from panic and chaos to like serene and feeling really grounded and really loved. And later on, she disclosed to me that she was a Reiki master. 
And that sparked my interest. Later on in my career at Fire Mountain, I went on a pass with Chris to the Boulder Psychic Institute and was able to receive a small energy healing there for a workshop that they were doing. And I had that same feeling. I had gone in really anxious, going out into the real world, as we call it. It can always be scary. There's triggers. You're walking down Pearl Street. You can smell weed. You can smell cigarettes. You you know, you have all of these, all of these triggers. So I went in feeling anxious and triggered and wanting to get high and not wanting to be there with the treatment center, wanting to have some sort of freedom, just really not enjoying my reality. But after the energy work, I was fine. And that it's a weird feeling to be fine and to not have anything to worry about and to not have anything to be triggered at. It's such a weird feeling that it produced almost like a natural high in me. I was euphoric. It was one of the one of the best moments of my life because I felt good and I it clicked in me that I could feel good and I could feel good without anything. There was no pill that I took, nothing that I smoked. It was just connection with this universal life force energy. And after I fully graduated Fire Mountain, I stumbled upon a Reiki teacher in Cheyenne and began taking classes with her and began doing my own research about Reiki and addiction. From there, I, you know, maybe that was that was my moment when I when I realized I can look back and I can go back to death and complacency, or I can move forward because I had found what worked for me. And beginning my Reiki training, I was overwhelmed with a sense of purpose. I knew that if I was able to share how I got better through energy healing with just one other person that I would be fulfilled. Now, if I was able to be the person that I needed, be the person, you know, be the terrier, be the practitioner at that Boulder Psychic Institute workshop that made someone realize that it was okay to feel good, then I would have satisfied some sort of life purpose. You know, Clara, there's a, One of the things that I'm most proud about of what Chris and I have built with all this amazing staff that we've had over the years is the fact that, and you just said it, is finding what works for you. And and if if Clara was the only representative of Fire Mountain out there, folks, it would certainly sound like we're this kind of hippie, new age, all holistic facility. The truth is, is that Clara going... To the psychic Boulder Psychic Institute and the Reiki healing. That's what she wanted. That's what our staff looked and said, this is resonating with her. A, because she's telling us it's resonating with her. She's actually taking the vitamins and supplements to heart. And for some of the kids we have, it's the 12 step that work. And for some of the kids, it's the equine program that was working. And for some of the kids, it was our connection to the wilderness that was working. And some of the kids just want the community. And that's That's the thing that I think is so important that you are talking about, Clara, is that you found what works for you and you've begun to fill your life with it. There is no super silver rescue bullet for every addict that you can just shoot them with and they're all better. Everybody's got to find that path. My path was not the new agey path. We we knew enough to provide it. Mine was a group of people whose stories were mine and, and mine was theirs. And it was, I had a group of men who 
held me accountable and said, quit being an a-hole. You got to do this and you have yours. And you know, that other guy had his and, and you have passionately continued to, to follow your path of recovery. You're in college now. I am in college. It's crazy. I went to college a year early and I'm thrilled. I'm going for art and psychology just to continue following my path. One of the other things that worked for me while at Fire Mountain was the art therapy program. And it worked so well that I was inspired to dedicate my life to it. Um, I'm looking at master's programs in art therapy and I contemplating getting a PhD in neuroscience. That was another thing that really worked for me at Fire Mountain was developing an understanding of how my brain works. For example, I struggled with disordered eating. And I was able to learn in Fire Mountain that anorexia affects two key parts of the brain, one of which is the amygdala, the fear receptor. And it also affects the brain in a way, in a deep part, that creates the habitual pattern of disordered eating. So just based on those two two small facts I easily could have Googled online, I was able to come up with a system to help me recover from my disordered eating. I knew that it affects the fear receptors of my brain. So I would practice mindfulness and allow myself to feel safe before I ate and really dissect my uh, environment. Here I am in Fire Mountain. I can, you know, it sounds silly, but I, I needed to be able to see the exits and feel grounded because I knew that whether I was aware of it or not, a fear would come up. Or I started eating on different colored plates, trying different foods to rewrite those pathways that I had created based on years of disordered eating. So just knowledge and awareness and understanding of how the brain works in situations like these and with diagnoses like mine really helped me to recover. And I think you're right that there are tons of different ways to recover. You stated it a lot more eloquently than I. That was kind of what I was trying to get at in the beginning. There wasn't just one thing that helped me in recovery. And there's not just you know, there's not a prescription or a, a one-size-fits-all. You really do need to explore and figure out and practice. What were some of the... Okay, so n- now let's say I'm a parent and I'm listening to you talk and my kid's in recovery. What are the things that parents can do that, that are really going to be supportive of recovery? And what are some big no-nos, some kind of non-negotiables for parents of teenagers who are working on recovering? I think the best thing for a parent to do is express how they're feeling in the situation. So often the child is the designated patient and it's always, well, how is the kid feeling? How is how's the teenager doing in this situation? Um, and all of the focus is directed on them rather than the family dynamics as a whole. I guess to summarize that, I would say that the parents need to realize the kid isn't the only problem. The way the family's working is the problem. And if they can come to terms with that and can be open to also healing themselves, I think it not only expedites the process of recovery for the teenager, but it also expedites the process of recovery for the family. That's a, that's incredible. Tell me about the the friends thing. You know, we we used to call it the strawberry patch or the playground. Like, did you have to let go of some friends? Do you have a new friend set? Has college made it easier? What's the peer pressure like in recovery? Like, how did the whole friend thing go when you began your path in recovery? The friend thing sucks. The friend thing is the hardest. <laughs> it's terrible. 
It's really terrible, especially, you know, Aaron, I think that you and all of the staff at Fire Mountain do a fantastic job creating a very familial community. I, some of my long-lasting and probably lifelong friends were also graduate members of Fire Mountain. And so you go from being able to see your closest peers day in and day out to going back to your hometown and not knowing anyone. I mean, obviously, you know everyone, like you've grown up with them, but they don't know who you are in recovery. And so trying to explore these new dynamics is it's rocky, it's raw, and it, for me, it didn't work out. I don't have a single friend that I had before Fire Mountain, and letting go of those friends was really hard. The loneliness gets to you, and I think that, you know, trauma takes place in isolation, and healing takes place in community. That's a sign that is front and center in the entryway to Fire Mountain, and it really resonates with me. So being able to find new ways to connect with yourself and your community can help with the loneliness and isolation brought on from abandoning your old friends. Like I said earlier, uh, my new friends became a group of what I, you know, grandpas and NA, these old timers, these truck drivers that I never would have connected with had it not been for recovery. And in college, you know, I, I moved to an, a different new small town where I didn't know anyone originally. And that's been helpful because I'm at the stage in my life where I am ready not to abandon my story, but to not allow it to take so much power over me. So instead of introducing myself like, hi, I'm Clara, I'm a recovering addict, you know, this is my story. If I'm in a situation where drugs and alcohol are involved, I can just leave. There doesn't need to be the explanation and I don't need to continue getting bogged down in it. I'm strong enough and secure in myself enough where... I know that I have power in my relationships. So there, there really isn't much peer pressure for me. Um, do, you, do you still find not, yourself getting tempted like you're at a party and you smell it and you're like, yeah, well, this time or are you kind of still in your gung-ho phase? Oh, yeah. Of course there's temptation and there always will be temptation. There's been relapse as well. But that's all, it's all part of it. It's part of the learning curve of recovery. And the biggest thing is to realize your say that there is a relapse say that you are tempted what are you going to do in the past i would have victimized myself or allowed myself to fall back into these familiar self-destructive patterns but now i move on you know i say all right i fucked up let's get to a meeting let's reach out to some other people in recovery to get a new chip and let's keep going What's next for you? And I, and I have to say, listening to you talk about your future, you know, it's 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 amazing because it's the one thing that we hear very little of at the beginning of recovery and a lot of. So when I say what's next for you, you know, I, I know you've talked about a PhD and the art therapy and stuff in school and all that type of stuff. But what about on a personal level? Is it is it time for a relationship yet? Is it time for, you know, like like what are you doing for your personal maintenance right now? Right now, I'm really focusing on, and I have been focusing on, and I think I probably will focus on this for the rest of my life, but being in a relationship to myself and allowing myself to just be. I, I'm living by myself in Laramie, and it's been a really awesome opportunity to discover who I am, what I am, what I like to do outside of my education and my career on a fundamental level. Am I okay with being with myself? And I think it's going to be a long, 
long process. I've been working on it for years. My horizon for personal maintenance is just continuing to be in relationship with myself and allow myself to be and to be able to look at my past self, my present self, and look forward to my future self with lots of compassion and no judgment. If there's a teenager listening to this podcast and they're in the deep and dark, you know, they're in the shadow portion of the cave and the dragons got the exit block, what do you say to them? Start digging a new exit. They fuck the dragon and keep going. You know, it's hard. And if you had asked me, if you had asked me what to do years ago, I would have said give up. I would have said, well, if the dragon's blocking the entrance to the cave, then that's that. Might as well embrace the fire it's about to throw at me. But anymore, I, I would say to fight. It's worth it. And you'll realize in hindsight how worth it is. It wasn't until I looked back and realized that I'm the person that I dreamt of being when I was a little girl that I felt like this recovery thing was worth it. Even a few months ago, like I I was feeling lost, like I had nowhere to go. And I looked back objectively, here you are, here's what you're doing. Is this where you want to be? Is this where your five-year-old little girl self would picture you? And most of the time it is. And that's how I know I'm on the keep on the right track, but getting to the right track It takes the fight. And that's what I would say, to be willing to fight. On that unbelievably profound note, I'm the person I dreamt of being when I was a little girl. Clara, you're my hero. And you're you're such an inspiration. I know that our current kids who remember you coming back to tell your story and volunteer, how they see you, the other graduates that you've helped coach and spent time with and given of your life and path to them, how they talk about you. The young boy that I wrote you about that I said, I, he was his fondness for you and just what you were willing to say to him in some dark moments for him resonate. And it matters. And you, what you've done is amazing. And uh, I'm I just want to say again how proud I am of you. You you really, you did it. You did it. You survived it. You did it. And everything from here forward belongs to you. And you deserve it. So thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, I I can't say how thank you. I, I'm, I'm not lost for words that often, Clara, but here I am stumbling over my own tongue. So nice job, girl. You rocked it. Thank you, Aaron. I appreciate it. And I just want to say one last thing before... We log off and it's to the parents. You may hear this story and be faced with the overwhelming fact that your kid is nothing like me. They're in their shit. And I I was in my shit too. But I want you guys to know I'm not an anomaly. This isn't some far-fetched idea. Recovery is attainable. And if you have even just the tiniest, tiniest will to fight, you'll be able to get there. And I would put my life on the line if it meant that I could save Fire Mountain programs and could guarantee that they would be there forever to help teenagers. It's what worked for me, you know, out of of everything, out of (laughs) all of the ideas that I've tried to conglomerate to give to you about what works, Fire Mountain is what works. I'm really grateful for for all of the work you do, Aaron, and for all of the work the, the Fire Mountain staff and the Bear Tribe does. So... Thank you. Thank you. Hey, is there a, do you have a website for your business yet or a Facebook page that people can reach out to you at? I have a LinkedIn and my website is under construction. I'm blessed enough to know a few pledging 
graphic designers that are helping me. Awesome. But as for now, you can reach me via LinkedIn and on the American Reiki Trade Association page. I am listed there as well. Awesome. Clara, thank you so much. We'll uh, we'll talk again soon. Hey, folks, remember the mantra. You take care of yourself first. You take care of your adult relationship second. Take care of your children third. In this way, we do our best work for the kids. I want to thank the production team at Mental Health News Radio, Maggie, Emily, and of course the boss goddess, Kristen Walker, everybody there, and mostly my guests. Clara, thanks for making us look so good and and I you own all of the recovery. You did it. it. It was amazing. We got to stand by, see you at your worst and celebrate you at your best. And it's awesome to just be involved. Folks, I hope you join me next time on Beyond Risk and Back. My name is Aaron Huey, and we will talk soon. Thank you for joining us at Beyond Risk and Back. Support for parents, clinicians, and teachers. Join us at beyondriskandback.com. You can download past episodes there. Visit Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center's website for information, support, and continuing education trainings for parents and professionals at www.firemountainprograms.com. You can also connect with me directly on Facebook by searching at Beyond Risk and Back. You can also follow me on Twitter, catch me on YouTube, and join me here every week for another podcast. This is Aaron Huey saying, remember, take care of yourself first, your adult relationships second, and your children third, because in that way, we do our best work for the children. Thank you for listening, and we will talk again soon.